This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik. When you're ill or in need of healthcare, this is probably the process you go through. You see a doctor or a healthcare professional, they identify a biological cause, you get a medical prescription and hopefully you recover. But what if you weren't prescribed medical therapy or not just that, but instead something like art classes or heritage visits or housing support? What do these recommendations known also as social prescribing, have to do with your medical condition and helping you get better. We find out more in my conversation today with Dr. Bogdan Kiva-Jurka, Global Lead and Clinical Lead with the National Academy for Social Prescribing in the UK. Dr. Bogdan, how are you? Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to, to be here with you and your listeners and thank you for having me. So, um, as I described in my introduction, I suppose a typical picture of seeking healthcare. Could you zoom out and show us what we're not seeing in that perhaps rather narrow view? What would you say is the larger context of health we need to take into consideration? It's very interesting because over the past few years um, or, or many, many decades, probably, we've been looking at health as mainly um, we've considered it as healthcare, the institutionalized way of delivering health. Really. And what we've missed is those key facts that have come from research and particularly from Professor Michael Marmot, who suggested through his research that 80 percent of our health is influenced by social determinants of health. And um, so the way we eat, the way we sleep how we live, how much money we have. Those are what we call social determinants of health. And they impact our health in proportion of 80%. Only 20% of our health is science and genes and COVID-19 and everything else that we experience. And the rest of 80% is in fact those social determinants of health. Now, in a normal system, what we normally would have seen is that somebody presents to the hospital and as you say, we feel the need to give them a prescription. And that's because we as doctors have been placed in hospitals as experts. We wear white coats, we tell people what to do, and we think we can resolve their problems. But when 80% of their health is social determinants of health, we fail to see what the research suggests which is that in England, one in five appointments with the doctors are for pure social reasons. So they are not for medical reasons and they're not for psychological reasons. They're in fact just for pure social reasons. So we're talking loneliness, isolation, financial problems, debt problems, but the individuals would still come to the doctor and we as, a, as, a, as doctors um, would probably prescribe another pill instead of taking the time to understand what is it that really matters to them. So it is this, this shift, unfortunately, that needs to happen away from the biomedical sphere for us to deliver a true biopsychosocial uh, model of care, which is something we've been talking for a long time but certainly something that we still have a lot to work on. Mm. You mentioned COVID-19, but of course the other major epidemic we're grappling with is that of the non-communicable diseases. Not just developed countries, but developing countries are, are facing this huge challenge as well. And, um, you know... Um, you, you just keep hearing the same narratives of how huge a burden it is, uh, what you need to do to prevent it, but there's this huge chasm in between and we're not meeting. Is that 
largely because we're not paying attention to that 80 percent Mm, I, I would say so. It's it's also because I think what we've been ignoring for a long, long time is the idea that we are getting older uh, and we are living longer, which of course should be celebrated. Technology allows us to live uh, much longer than before. However, we know that by 2030, for example, we'll have a double in the amount of people living over the age of 65. And that brings its own problems. I think for a clinician like myself, 2030 sounds scary because my caseload will instantly double with exactly what you described, these long-term conditions, diabetes, heart problems, cancer, long-term conditions that uh, will be there for uh, for many years. And we will collect those conditions uh, during our lifetime and we will probably seek help um, in formal um, excellent institutions like hospitals when in fact what we should do is probably start cultivating health within our homes and our local communities. So the concept the concept of prevention, as you described, has been neglected for, for far too long, uh, particularly through funding, uh, but it's also been neglected in its truer sense of the word of the idea of perhaps health creation. And um, so when we talk about prevention, what comes to mind mainly are mainly uh, screening programs mm. or maybe um, perhaps uh, uh, vaccine uh, programs as well. But nobody really thinks about the idea of health creation, which is the concept of generating health at home and in the local community in our own capacity whilst we're young, whilst we're well, whilst we're in good health. And the idea of taking part in um, activities that we generate health um, actively. Mm, that's such a paradigm shift because we expect, like you said, that prescription, right? We we, we want uh, something uh, that we can walk away with, do X and, um, you know, presumably outcomes will be Y. Yeah, we, we do seem to be thinking in algorithms. And I think the, um, the way the healthcare systems have been built over time, uh, especially the NHS in England, for example, it's been built in response to war uh, and it's been built at a time when we needed uh, to cater for the sick. Uh, but at the moment, if we look at the whole population globally and, and nationally in England, and also it's the same in Malaysia, um, two thirds of individuals are actually in good health and are well. Only one third at a given time is poorly or sick. Mm. So what we shouldn't do is wait for people to fall ill and then simply patch them up or put a sticker a sticker on them and send them back home or prescribe another pill. What we should do is take advantage of the times when people are well so that we can prevent diseases in the longer run um, as well. And certainly the if X, then Y algorithmic way of thinking is a, is a particularly sick care model um, that we want to move away from. We want to start placing health at the center of healthcare, and we want to move to a more salutogenic approach, a more preventative approach to medicine. Mm. But I'm sure it's not a new realization for healthcare professionals, but what's been stopping clinicians like yourself or um, your fraternity from being able to address that? That's a very, very good question. I think if you ask doctors around the world why they, they don't engage more with patients in preventative measures, um, they will tell you that the number one barrier is time. Um, time has become the, the most valuable resource of today's day and age. And especially as our cases are going up in terms of non-communicable diseases, as we see a, a, a surge in patient numbers, we are not able to 
provide the same high quality care to every single individual. And so what we end up doing is rushing from one patient to another, not giving them the time that they deserve. And we there's been um, several research studies showing that um, doctors who um, had or felt they had time, they spent more quality time in conversations that would empower individuals to perhaps get involved in physical activity or get involved in, in um, better nutrition. Uh, but mostly it's because of time pressures on us as clinicians, which is why I think the new idea idea of social prescribing um, could really help clinicians uh, to, to look again uh, a bit deeper at the idea of prevention. Mm. So let's go for a quick break. And when we come back, um, let's dive into what exactly that means, social prescribing. I'm speaking to Dr. Bogdan Kiva-Jurka, Global Lead and Clinical Lead with the National Academy for Social Prescribing in the UK. Stay tuned. We'll be right back on BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shawi. Joining me on Zoom today, Dr. Bogdan Kiva-Jurka, Global Lead and Clinical Lead for the National Academy for Social Prescribing in the UK. We've been talking about um, the state of healthcare today. Dr. Bogdan described perhaps what the NHS goes through, which is very, or, or adopts, and which is very similar to the Malaysian healthcare system, which was modeled on the NHS anyway, and very much this sick care model of looking at individuals and uh, what they can be prescribed from a purely biomedical perspective and how we could expand that to look at the social determinants of individuals which uh, account for 80% uh, of an individual's health uh, and well-being and outcomes. So that brings us to the concept of social prescribing, Dr. Bogdan. What is it? Yeah, the, 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 the real question for today's uh, show, I presume. But um, it's very interesting because when we first realized the statistic in England about one in five doctor appointments being for pure social reasons, we realized that we were doing individuals who were visiting us in hospitals or primary care a disservice um, because they were coming there not for pills or practical procedures. They were coming there for unmet needs in their social or psychological um, uh, lives as well beyond the hospital and so the the english um, national healthcare system came up with a, a model entitled social prescribing now if you forget everything about social prescribing all you need to remember that it's simply connecting individuals with a need um, to um, activities or uh, support in the local community that goes beyond the biomedical sphere so for someone who has a medical problem, but on top of it, they might have loneliness, they might have isolation, they might have money problems, they might have uh, debt, or they may be feeling low, perhaps. In this case, um, social prescribing allows the medical practitioner to separate the medical issue from the non-medical issue, and it allows the practitioner to, yes, do the prescribing for the pills, but in addition to that, they, it allows the practitioner to um, uh, connect the individual um, to resources and activities within the local community. And perhaps the most powerful and important part of social prescribing is this new role that was created um, called the social prescribing link worker. It's often referred to as a connector or a navigator. It's similar to a nurse or a midwife. And what this link worker does is simply offering the individual something that 
I as a doctor would never ever have the luxury of doing nowadays, which is offering them time. The link worker sits down with the patient and they dig deep at the root cause of what is it that truly matters to them. And in this way, they don't make assumptions of what they think may be wrong with it with the patient, like we do in our quick 10 minutes with patients. And the link worker actually has a whole hour with the patient um, as opposed, opposed to me uh, in 10 minutes in my clinics. Mm. And in this time, they're able to map out their problems, co-create and co-design a social prescription of um, activities they can join within the local community. And that could range from yoga, to sports, to singing, but more so some individuals may need practical advice, such as housing or financial advice, uh, and that is being done in, in, in collaboration with a social worker as well. Presumably, it's more structured and um, an individual sort of trying to do this on their own. Um, I can imagine if you are already hit with a medical diagnosis and trying to um, struggle with that, you, I guess you're not really mentally in that state of mind to think about what you need, right? Where to reach out. Exactly, which is why we felt it was very important that social prescribing in England was a core pillar of healthcare. Because ultimately, individuals aren't able to separate their problems into biomedical or social or psychological. So they will turn up to the hospital thinking perhaps it's a medical problem. And quite often, individuals don't present with one or the other. You don't come in with a heart attack um, or loneliness. You come in with a heart attack and loneliness. So it's for us, the medical professionals, to distinguish and realize that beyond their biomedical issues, and um, they do also have other unmet needs far beyond the biomedical um, sphere. And what's very interesting is that quite often they appear as medical problems, uh, but they are not. So people with low mood, for example, may be quickly put on antidepressants when in fact we know um, that physical activity uh, and diet and other interventions play as important of a role as pills do. And mm. um, so it's certainly not a criticism of modern day medicine and pills, but we are saying that in addition to pills, there are unmet needs that we need to support our, our individuals with. Can you share any examples of what you've seen you know, unfold in, in, in your practice perhaps? Absolutely. I have this story that uh, gives me uh, goosebumps to this day. It's a, it's a patient that I had in the emergency department, and she was a 16-year-old teenage girl, um, and she uh, was coming from a lower socioeconomic um, uh, background, um, and she was uh, seeing us in the emergency department the seventh time in a row. As she came in over the past maybe eight weeks, she would come in every single Sunday, she would be in the emergency department. And the reason for her being there, um, as done by the triage nurse, uh, was a question mark uh, with heart attack or heart abnormality for someone who is 16 years old. And the reason why they put that down was because she was having a constant heart fluttering um, and also feeling stressed and feeling um, her heart racing. Now, when I saw her the seventh time, um, I was—I I didn't see her before, my colleagues did, and I looked at the notes, and the only notes I could see in the emergency department was um, social admission. Um, so they said that she was there for a purely social issue uh, and diagnosed as a panic attack. 
but no further notes were documented because probably my colleagues did not have enough time and they probably sent her back to the GP. Now, when I saw her on the seventh time, I promised myself I would spend an extra five minutes just to understand what's truly happened there. When I spoke to her in five minutes and exactly 36 seconds, um, she bursted crying and she said to me that sadly her ex-boyfriend left her and she gave birth to twins. So she now had um, um, babies to look after. Her family disowned her and said to her that she should never, ever return back home um, again. And so what happened is she was living now with some of her friends and looking after two newly born babies. And so every single weekend, she said, when she was thinking about this, she felt the world closing in onto her and she felt her heart racing and she felt as if she was going to, to die. And so she would come into the emergency department. When I asked her, what did we do for you in the emergency department? She said that sadly, she was referred back to the medical, uh, to the primary doctor and she was referred to social services. But because social services have such a long waiting time at the moment, nothing really happened for her. And because she didn't have the education, the language, she couldn't really access those services herself. So what I did is I simply referred her to a social prescribing link worker. And this individual bypassed the general practitioner and simply helped her apply to benefits, helped her apply for a house, and I stopped hearing it for an, a year. Until a year after, I got a letter through the post from her general practitioner thanking me and saying she's now um, got a house, uh, she now has a job, and she has someone to look after um, the babies as well. So she was able to, to get that necessary support. Now, that's a very extreme case of perhaps elements that you would never consider social prescribing might be there for. We usually think about art, we usually think about physical activity, but sadly on the hierarchy of needs, people do have housing issues, financial issues, and especially in, in, in England for us, social determinants of health play a, a big role um, on, on our life expectancy. And so this individual portrays that uh, uh, mostly. Uh, but there's several examples with loneliness, isolations, uh, depression and others. But I think this example really illustrates the practical element of social prescribing and also shows that in spite of social services being available, education, literacy is quite often a barrier to accessing them. Exactly. So social prescribing with the um, with that very central role played by the link worker to cut through red tape, to help you navigate the system and kind of know what the barriers are, it can address inequities then. Exactly. It doesn't really resolve the inequities yes. that the society has created. So I think we have to be careful to not to say that it's a, a it's a plaster for austerity or for the government's lack of support. I think it can only do as much as the resources allow. However, as you say, what it does is um, really being the, the voice of the individuals that don't have a voice. It's advocating for those who are weaker or unable to, to have that voice themselves and it's bringing them power. And quite often, I would say in England, we, we really believe that social prescribing works best for the ones who need it most. Uh, we truly believe that although um, we may be excited by the, uh, by the idea of 
prescribing art on prescription or nature on prescription. And social prescribing is so much more than that. And this this story and case study in itself is a, is a great example of that. Mm. Um, so social prescribing needs that system in place. Um, however uh, enthusiastic one healthcare professional might be, they, they still can't do that on their own, right? Exactly. So which is why in England, uh, we decided to create a whole new role um, uh, for, this, uh, for as a social prescriber. So the social prescribers are called social prescribing link workers, and they are a new role in healthcare, similar to nursing, similar to midwifery, um, or similar to, to a physiotherapist. We needed to create that role because clinicians would not be able to offer this amount of time. In some countries, social prescribing happens differently. And what we've seen around the world is that perhaps if social workers are very well supported and they have plenty of time, they could be extra trained and upgraded perhaps to also do social prescribing. Uh, But in England, our social workers are also very burdened by what's happening in the society. Doctors do not have time to do it themselves. Therefore, we had to hire and create a new role, um, uh, all from scratch, which would work with a doctor. And that that role is there to simply give time. It's to give time to listen um, and to to map out uh, different problems. And with great skills of perhaps motivational interviewing um, or perhaps um, co-production, they are able to design a plan um, that the individual is is able to take. And quite often, for the people who are disengaged, they offer extra hand-holding. So they may drive the patient to the um, art on prescription activity. They may go with the individual um, to a cooking class and whatever there may be, their need is, and they are doing the extra handholding, which we as clinicians would never have time for. Mm. But you still need um, buy-in from healthcare professionals to make that uh, connection. Uh, and, you know, like you said, you took an extra five minutes. You were willing to look beyond her uh, quote-unquote panic attacks. Um, How's that been? What's been reception from other healthcare professionals, um, you know, within the NHS? uh, Just, I'm wondering, for instance, whether um, the idea of prescribing art activities, um, walks in nature, could be seen by some as being fluff, you know, eh, what's the point? Yeah, absolutely. We, we had this uh, in particular with a lot of clinicians who were looking at the evidence of social prescribing. And there were, a lot of them were considering the subject fluffy because we as clinicians are being taught from day one in medical school and that we have to prescribe and that we have to give this medication for um, this problem. And so it's been a journey that we were on. However, what we found very interesting is that the majority of clinicians were also struggling with their time and caseload. We noticed that um, such individuals with non-medical problems were competing on their time load and their caseload. And what we noticed is that in spite of us knowing that 80% of our health issues are based on social determinants of health, what we noticed is that clinicians didn't really have a practical tool. They didn't really have a way of resolving those 80% of social determinants of health. And so as soon as clinicians in England realize that social prescribing is a practical tool, it does not solve austerity. It does not solve the wider societal issues. 
But for the first time ever, clinicians were able to refer um, someone to a link worker and they were able um, to take away and separate and peel off the different, um, different dimensions. So the clinician would be able to focus on the biomedical problem and then the social prescribing link worker could focus on the social well-being or the psychological well-being with support from the multidisciplinary team. But they didn't believe us all the way until the evidence started coming out. So now there are clear studies on, on PubMed and other evidence um, uh, databases where you will see that social prescribing in England in areas where it's been integrated and implemented has decreased uh, primary care appointments in some places by 40% um, and, and emergency department appointments between 20 and 40%. And so the appointments are going down the overprescribing is also going down, so we're keeping people better, and so clinicians realize that it's it's a, a no-brainer, uh, and it helps them rather than than hinders them. Mm. And so, how long has the UK been doing this? Social prescribing could be argued to have probably started uh, for many, many decades. Mm. However, officially and formally, the policy model has been implemented ever since 2019. Mm. Uh, so perhaps the past three, four years now. Um, and we're very, very proud to say that we started with 100 social prescribing link workers in the workforce. And it's now all the way up to 3,600 social prescribing link workers across the um, across England. Um, and the, the good thing about that is that that means there's at least one for each primary care clinic. So it's it, we've reached universal social prescribing coverage, um, which means that if you as an individual um, want to access social prescribing via your primary care practitioner, you will be able to do so. And it's also been disseminated across secondary care at emergency department level and other areas as well as an innovative model too. Mm -hmm. How do you see this model being adopted by countries like Malaysia? I'm not, I'm not sure. Of course, you may not be fully familiar with our healthcare system, but um, you know we, we have a two-tier system, public and private, um, sort of existing concurrently. We have a very extensive public healthcare system that um, is said to be able to provide universal care uh, right down to the rural um, you know, areas, but also very fragmented. Um, costs of healthcare is a huge challenge we're grappling with. Where do you think a country like Malaysia could start? Mm, it's it's a fantastic question, and we are certainly looking to to learn from different countries. When we have a community of practice that we're running across thirty two different countries, and Malaysia is one of them, and we have some fantastic academics and doctors involved in uh, researching and looking what the social prescribing model could be looking like. One thing I wanted to say is that one size does not fit all. And uh, of course, that's the same for our patients. That's what social prescribing says, but also for our policy model as well. In England, the reason we place social prescribing link workers in healthcare was because our workforce and staff were being um, overburdened with the number of caseloads and, and, and the number of patients they had to see. We've seen different countries around the world who've started looking at social prescribing being placed in the community and the local community area, particularly countries like Japan, um, particularly countries um, like uh, China, uh, where social support is perhaps 
better um, than in England, um, for example. And so that's a debate that I think Malaysia will have to have. Uh, should the social prescribing link worker be placed in healthcare, like in England, or could they be in the local community um, uh, and, and perhaps share notes with a, with a clinician? I think one thing is for sure um, that, that what Malaysia could, could, um, could use from England is this idea that social prescribing is relevant to any demographic. In fact, it works as a, as a spectrum. So you could have social prescribing both in the public system and in the private system. In the public system, you would perhaps um, uh, reach those who need it the most. You would reach the ones who are most affected by social determinants of health. You would support doctors ease their caseloads and you would um, uh, prevent an overburdening of the healthcare system. However, we've also learned from the USA, we've also learned from other countries where they lead a highly privatized medical system. And what they've done is they've worked more with insurance companies to suggest and to show how they would decrease um, the, the, the funding that is being used in the longer run on individuals who you could prevent the disease for. And um, so in the longer run, the insurance companies, for example, could pay less because you're preventing the disease from happening. Uh, but of course, uh, medical doctors in the private system may not be so happy <laughs> because at the end of the day, it reduces the, their caseload. Uh, but hopefully uh, they understand that it's for the greater good and for the betterment of their patients in the, in the first place. Mm. I, I know the NHS, like probably every single healthcare system around the world, is struggling with resource allocation. So, you know, for Malaysia to consider um, investing in social prescribing, um, we're talking about training a huge number of, um, you know, the link workers, like you've said. What, what would you say to the argument that, you know, if we had this kind of funding, uh, we also need to build more hospitals, we need to train more specialists? Um, how, how do we balance who gets what? Yeah, that is a fantastic question. And I think um, it, it's been one that our government in England has been asking us um, as well. And my answer to that is that we cannot afford not to anymore because what we are seeing is we are playing the short-term game. And I think COVID-19 particularly has been a, a, a simulation of what could really happen if we had a surge in patient numbers. Um, and that's exactly what our future looks like given the ever-growing um, old-age demographic and um, the younger people who we need more mental health support. We are seeing uh, not only a, an epidemic of COVID-19, as we saw, but we are seeing an epidemic of mental health, an epidemic of loneliness, um, obesity, and other issues um, as well. Now, what we've seen from research in England and what makes the case for investing in social prescribing is that in a year, there's been a London School of Economics study and it shows that it can save 4.5 million appointments with doctors. When the economic uh, analysis was done for that, um, it showed that it saves the NHS 300 million pounds um, per year. Um, the cost of the social prescribing program was 220 million pounds. So in a year, not only you're covering the whole costs of the program, but you're also left with 80 million pounds to reinvest in developing hospitals and, and other elements. And that's just primary care numbers. And um, there's a recent economic analysis that we did at the National Academy of Social Prescribing. And for every pound invested, um, you get uh, four pounds back from social prescribing. And um, so four times that the, the amount as well. And so these are um, economical arguments which 
were necessary, uh, especially for our politicians and for our government to invest in social prescribing. And as a reflection of those studies coming out, um, the UK government has agreed to tripling the social prescribing link worker numbers. So we're now looking at 9,000 social prescribing link workers over the next few years, uh, which is incredible to think that it started in 2019. So clearly it's the money argument that that wins you, right? Um, just very quickly, Dr. Bogdan, what is the role of the National Academy for Social Prescribing in all of this? Absolutely. So we are a Department of Health funded um, organization. We've been set up by the Secretary of State and Social Care in 2019, right when the policy model was created um, at the national healthcare system. And our role is to advocate and convene. Um, So we are there to deliver and support the social prescribing delivery across the country. We provide training internationally and nationally, uh, mostly um, nationally for our social prescribing link workers to make sure they have the necessary resources, but also internationally because we want to share learning. We learn quite a lot from countries around the world. And I have this joke all the time that England doesn't have the, have the best fish and chips. And I think we have the recipe for fish and chips, but we can learn from other countries. And so we are, have a global program um, as part of the National Academy. Um, and we, we have developed a global map for social prescribing to learn more from the nuances of different healthcare systems, such as Malaysia, such as Singapore and, and many others around. And one of the most important points that that we also work on is political engagement, but also evidence um, and shared investment funds. So when we talk about um, the evidence, we have a group, a consortium of 10 universities, including University College London, University of Oxford and several others who are looking at the evidence for social prescribing. And of course, as you say, money is also one of the biggest problems um, that we, we face when delivering social prescribing. So this is why we've started looking more at shared investment funds. And so perhaps looking much broader than healthcare to integrate the entertainment industry, uh, perhaps the theater industry, the Premier League, perhaps the Arts Council and other organizations who are able to co-fund and provide a shared investment fund for the delivery of the activities of social prescribing in the local community. Yeah, that's brilliant because these are, at the same time, um, the activities that um, people engage in for better well-being as well. Exactly, exactly. Which is why it's so strange that for many, many decades, we've considered health uh, from the prism of illness. Mm. I think that is the paradigm shift that we're looking at. And for once, we are starting to work with the Ministry of Culture and the Ministry for Sports and Physical Activity. We are looking far beyond the idea and the realm of healthcare. And we are realizing that really health is at the epicenter of all of those domains. Um, And you can involve, for example, Manchester United and their stadium to provide a running or a football class for uh, men in their 50s or 60s who are lonely and isolated. And you are supporting physical activity, but you're also preventing loneliness in such individuals. And that's the same for young people. Um, And one of the, the biggest issues that we've seen recently is the increase in suicide rates, the increase in mental health um, rates um, for young people. And certainly something has to change uh, because if it doesn't, uh, we we are looking at a, a bleak future. Do you have a final message to sort of leave our listeners with some food for thought, Dr. Bogdan? 
My final food for thought is that if uh, social prescribing exists, and if communities who've been doing these activities for a long, long time, what we've spoken about today is certainly not new. It's just probably like, um, I'd call it um, maybe uh, old wine, good wine in a new bottle, I'd probably say. If communities are able to continue this work and integrate it better with healthcare and get people like myself, clinicians, to be more involved, I think people may not even need doctors in the end. Uh, because if communities and people get well at home, and in the local community, they will not be able to actually seek help from a doctor in the end if we prevent diseases from happening. And social prescribing does just that. It moves our uh, attention from a sick care model to a health care model uh, where we are able to prevent things from happening and keep people well at home and in the local community. Mm. Because quite frankly, hospitals are for repairs and health happens at home and in the local community. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Bogdan Kiva-Jurka, Global Lead and Clinical Lead with the National Academy for Social Prescribing, um, proposing a model where he will eventually be put out of a job. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. This has been Health and Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.